Hi, I'm Kate, and I'm going to read you a story called Adam and the Apple. God said, don't eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat the fruit, you will die. God has a terrible enemy named Satan. Satan is evil, and he always wants people to do bad things. He came into that beautiful garden pretending to be a snake. He slithered around that one tree and whispered to Eve, you will die if you eat this fruit. You will learn about good and evil, and you will be like God. Satan lied, but the woman chose to believe him instead of God. She ate the fruit, Adam did too. All at once, God's perfect world changed. When the man and woman broke God's rules, something called sin entered the world, and that made God sad. God made clothes to cover them because they were ashamed. Adam and Eve could no longer live in his perfect garden of Eden. God had to send them away where work would be hard and life would be painful. But God had a plan. Yay! He would come to earth as a baby and grow to be a man who would defeat Satan and rescue God's children. Jesus would be his name. I can't wait. Welcome everybody to an online service that we're putting on today. Lightning free is the way to be. That's our mantra this morning. So hopefully we get through the whole thing. Thanks for joining us. If we haven't met, my name is Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here and we're starting a new series. This summer is going to be family services. And so we thought, what better way to have family services at Crossroads or at home than going back through maybe some of the most popular stories you might have heard if you grew up in the church. The Sunday, sco- the Sunday school highlights, if you will. And so we're calling it Grown Up Gospel because in reality, there are things we learn as kids that have to grow up with us. I was on the interwebs this week and I was looking up some of the things that we believed as kids that, that, that grow up as we grow up and some resonated to me. One of the first ones that I remembered was um, if you eat like an apple seed or a watermelon seed, that it will grow inside of you and slowly come outside of you. I actually read a book to my daughter most nights called The Watermelon Seed, and that is the story of the book. We lie to them from the beginning, you know? A couple others that I believed as a kid. One, I don't know why, and I don't know if it's universal, but I really believed that quicksand was a real problem that I was going to encounter in my life. Way bigger deal than it actually was, but I was terrified as a child of quicksand. I thought it was everywhere, and we had to be on the lookout for it. I think there's other ones too. I think one of the most popular is that if you swallow gum, it takes seven years, that's right, to actually fully digest. Uh, One of my favorites was simply that adults have it all figured out. (laughs) How's that one going for us right now? And and here's why I say those things is because we all have concepts and constructs that have to grow up with us. And what that doesn't mean is that the concepts we learned were bad. Don't swallow gum or seeds. Quicksand does kill people and grownups don't have it all figured out, but they have a little deeper level of thinking. And, And so what we have to do is recognize the intrinsic goodness of the principles we learned as kids and grow them up as the world becomes more nuanced. I was talking to a friend of mine who's struggling with Jesus a little bit a couple weeks ago, and we had the same conversation about gospel and what he was taught as a kid and how it doesn't necessarily fit into the world he lives in now. And it's because we'd never done the hard work of growing up his version of who God is that doesn't necessarily fit in a black and white world. 
And I think that's partly our fault as the church. We've taught for years that churches were about teaching you how to win at Jesus Jeopardy and not, not knowing who God is intrinsically. Being able to apply the principles of a good God to maybe the more gray and less black and white world that we live in. So what I want to do with this series is go through it and say, this was the good original story. And as we grow it up a little bit, maybe we see God in a different and hopefully more full light. And today we begin at the beginning with Adam and the apple. But before we get into it, we're going to take a sec like we do at CBC and we're just going to pray. And we do that so that individually we can get our hearts right. We live in a critical culture and that is not where we're called to be as Christians. We are called to be contributors to the conversation of faith, not critics of it. So this morning isn't about how good the worship is and the sermon is and it's going to be the best you've ever heard, <laughs> hopefully. But it's about how, how God is teaching us how the spirit is, is welling up inside of us, a, an appreciation for a joy for the God that's good to us that we see from the beginning of scriptures to the end. So this morning, we're gonna take a sec and I'm gonna ask that you pray. I'm asking that you pray for me that we get, get our hearts right before we open God's word. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can be here wherever we're at, whether we're listening live or later on. And I just, I'm thankful that we can worship. <laughs> that we live in a time and place through the grace you've given us that we can worship um, in our homes <laughs> and in different cities and states and in countries as we watch this. I pray this morning as we worship and open your word and hear from the scriptures that you teach us. So just take a couple seconds at home and, and say a quick prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might teach you this morning. I'd also ask that you say a quick prayer for me that I do a good job in teaching God's word and revisiting a story that we probably know well but want to know better. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You can say it at home. Don't worry about it. So we are in Genesis 1. And Kate read the story. She did a fantastic job. My favorite part was when she whispered as the devil, because oftentimes it's how the devil probably speaks to us. You know, we're tempted through the whispers, the still small little voices, not the big ones. And, and, and I love just kind of the, the construct of this story. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to break it down into three main parts, the garden, the apple, and the consequence. And we're going to have a chiastic structure to the message this morning. All that means is we're going to go garden, apple, consequence, and then we're going to walk it back down deeper, consequence, apple, garden, and see hopefully a fullness of the picture of who God is in our story. So it begins with a garden. Let's tell the story of the scriptures, the story of humanity begins. It says in Genesis 1.31, after God's created acts in different categories, culminating with mankind, after that, he stopped creating. He looked over all that he'd made, and he said it was good. And from when I was a kid to now, that is still true. What God created was good, all of it, because a good God can't create not good things. God created good. And, and what we see there when it says good, and we've talked about this at Crossroads a, a lot, it's not just the idea that it was perfect. It's the idea that it was perfectly fit together for human and other flourishing. So the, the Hebrew construct for that is shalom. That's what they would call it. And we define shalom as the webbing together 
of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom is what Jesus said when he said, I come to bring peace, right? That's the same Hebrew word. It's more than just a word. It's more than just the absence of violence. It's a construct of God's created order that is perfect for flourishing. And so God said in the beginning, it is good. It fits together well. It's kind of like if you, if you cook, you know that you can have all these great ingredients, but if you don't put them together well, it's not the best it could be, right? Bacon doesn't belong on everything. Sorry, we're going to figure that out as <laughs> we go on in America. We're not quite there yet. It belongs on a lot of stuff, but not, not everything. So bacon is good, but the order in which we use our ingredients makes something taste even better. God said, what I've created is perfect. It's perfect in its nature and it's perfect in how it fits together for human flourishing. So we have this idea of a perfect garden. Adam and Eve are popped in the middle of it and there's this one tree they can't eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord commanded him, you may eat freely from every tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There's this one place they can't go, this one place they can't eat from. There is in the garden choice. And now we can talk for a while about why that choice exists, but I think fundamentally, if we believe that God created and he is love, then for true love to exist, true choice has to exist also. You cannot have true love without actual choice. And so what God does in the garden is says, I want love to exist in its fullest form. I want you to choose me because I chose to create you. And what we do when we teach the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Adam and the apple and Eve, what we do is we center it around the choice, a tree, and an apple. And what we're doing when we tell the story like that is making it an ethical proposition. That the story of Adam and Eve and the apple and the snake is really one about right and wrong, good and bad, ethical and unethical. We teach the story around rules and regulation. And Adam and Eve, you know it. So we have the garden, we have the apple, and then the consequence. They chose poorly. Uh, I remember every time I think about this, I think about, have you seen the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? They go into the temple at the end and, and they pick a cup they're supposed to drink from. And if you pick the wrong one, it'll kill you. And um, there's some really awesome 1980s graphics going on there if you watch the movies. And this one guy drinks the cup and he dies. And, and the guy in charge of the cup room says he chose poorly. This is Adam and Eve here. And what it's saying to us is there are consequences for actions. It goes on to say in Genesis that, that, that they later had to be kicked out of the garden because of the choice that they made. And so what we teach when we teach this story, what I learned when I learned this story early on is that God made everything good. We had a choice because God wants true love to exist. And if we choose badly, here's what happens. That what happens at the end of Genesis 3, they expelled them from the garden. Actually says in chapter 2, the Lord God expelled them from the orchard in Eden to cultivate the ground from where he had been taken. So we have this story, it's pretty clean, it's pretty compact, of God's good, fruit could be good or bad, man chose wrongly. And what you really get if you think about it, if you make it an ethical proposition, one that ends with nearness to God or farness from God, is we really make it a proposition about like a cosmic timeout, you know? Uh, th this idea that if you choose poorly, you will individually not be able to spend time with God. It becomes this construct of choice, punishment, right, wrong, nearness, or go away. My daughter 
is a lovely little thing, and we're having a parenting problem right now. We cannot get this girl. She's 22-ish months, 23-ish months. We can't get her to not throw food. I'm talking like every time she eats, it looks like Easy Mac grenade went off in my kitchen. It is everywhere, and we really don't want her to throw the food. And so a friend of ours has a daughter who's about two years older, and they started timeouts. And so with their daughter, they threatened the idea of a timeout and she fights it with all she has. And they put her in the corner for a timeout. They'll sit right next to her, but she will lose her mind the entire time because she feels so wrought with guilt, you know? That's not my daughter. My, my daughter, when we say, Eleanor, if you throw any more food, you're gonna go into a timeout. She says, timeout, and then she screams, yes, and smiles at us. And sometimes she'll get up and walk over there herself and tease us from the corner, like what you're doing is not working. Here's my point. When we teach the story of Genesis 3, oftentimes that's how we teach our relationship to God. People either feel guilty and they want to turn back towards because the punishment of hell is supposed to drive us towards heaven. Or they say in the first place, yeah, I'm okay without God. Because what we teach when we teach Genesis 3 oftentimes is the individual punishment for individual sin. So let's walk back through our construct a bit and see that maybe it's a little more. So let's start with the consequences. In the Hebrew world, in the first century world, in a culture that's not as individualistic, you could not help but see this through a lens of um, community and not individuality. Sometimes we teach this with your decision to mess up or not mess up, your decision to be far from God or close to God. And while that is true, Romans makes it true that we bear the weight of our sin because we've chosen poorly and, 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 and participate in the brokenness of the world. We can't help but divorce. Um, we can't help but, but remember that there is a corporate nature to the gospel. It's, it's what we see all throughout the scriptures, especially in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, as God finds them, he says, you guys broke the rules. And when you did that, the world broke with you. And he says, literally, now I'm going to have to punish things. My good order is broken. And so he says, this is what sin does. It says, it's going to create strife between you and the woman to Adam. He says, relationally, we're going to be broken. He said, it's going to create problems between um, you and the animals you were supposed to cultivate and care for. It's going to create problems between you and me. You have to get out of the garden. What we see is that sin extends beyond just the individual that sins. So we define sin then in the context of shalom, which is what God created. And we say sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. And I know that to be true because my kid throws food. <laughs> so when she throws food, it's not just her that feels the weight of it. Guess who cleans it up? My wife, <laughs> me too, all the time, you know? We clean up the food and it costs us. It costs us time, it costs us money. Um, and then it extends from there. It's not just us, but then it damages our house sometimes as we have to clean windows and baseboards and every once in a while. We'll miss a rogue blueberry that's somewhere under something and we'll come back the next day and an army of ants has decided that our home is now their home. Sin spreads. It's why right now in the middle of the current climate and culture, when people ask, why are all these things happening? Because the world is broken. This week on Twitter or something, I saw a line that I really liked. Somebody wrote, and I think it went viral, it said, I always wanted to know what it was like to live in the civil rights movement, the Dust Bowl, and the Great Depression, <laughs> just not at the same time, right? Because this week, if you followed it, there is this sand from the Sahara, dust that has come across the ocean, and that's why it's a little hazy outside, because all these things are happening right here, right now. Why is it happening? The world is broken. See, if we tell the story in an individual construct, 
then what we miss is the fact that we need to blame God when bad things happen, when really sin broke the entire order that God created that was good. So when we have to ask the question, why does, fill in the blank, why does the pandemic exist? Why did an earthquake hit? Why did lightning strikes burn down houses in our area? It's not because God made it happen or wanted it to happen. It's because the world is broken, because sin is more than individual. That's why Romans says it like this in chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. All of the world around us wants to be reconciled, made new again, put in the right order that God created in the first place. So when we talk about the consequences, it's bigger than just you and me. It extends to all that we see. And that's the construct they're teaching from in Genesis 3 when Moses wrote this. So we see that the consequences are bigger, not just individual. And then let's walk it back down. And then we have this idea of the apple, right? This decision point, this critical juncture in mankind's history where we could have been good, but we decided not to be. And let's just get something out there. You might know this, you might not. It was not an apple, most likely. Apple gets a really bad rap for for generations now. What actually happened was, if you want to know, I find this stuff fascinating. If you want to know how it became an apple in the fourth century, the, the Pope, um, Damasus in the fourth century, needed, wanted the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, to be translated into Latin, because, of course. And so he hired a guy named Jerome to translate it. And Jerome actually translated the Hebrew word peri, which just means, any, it literally could mean any kind of fruit. He translated that apple because in the Latin, apple and um, evil, malice are actually the same word. So he thought he was being funny. And you think my jokes are bad. So he literally translated it, apple or evil, and it stuck ever since. And then it really picked up steam when John Milton wrote Paradise Lost and and made it an apple twice. And that's really where we started seeing apples depict the fruit they ate in the story of Genesis 3. And so apples get a bad rap. It's not an apple at all. Actually, what it was was any kind of fruit. But here's the deal, is that the fruit wasn't bad. God creates good things. (laughs) The fruit was never intrinsically evil because it was never, ever a question of ethics. When we read the scripture, sometimes we have to know what we're reading. And, And so often when we come to the scripture, we come to a book that we think is an ethical proposition, a book that exists to teach us right and wrong. And here's the deal. It does that. It teaches us right from wrong, but that's not its primary responsibility. The primary purpose of the scriptures is to tell the story of God redeeming his people so that he is the most glorified. The apple isn't the problem here. People are. It was never about an apple. All along, the story was about autonomy. Autonomy is self-governance. The problem wasn't the fruit itself. It was what it represented if we were going to follow in God's construct or follow after ours. What we see throughout the history of humankind is creation in the wrong hands reflects the purpose of the ruler. It says in Genesis 3, when Satan is propositioning Adam and Eve, the serpent said to the woman, surely you will not die, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. It was never an ethical proposition, but a proposition of position in the first place. And here's where that's really important, because if we think it was about an apple in the garden, in some way we think we're divorced from that same decision. All sin, all upending of God's good order is all about whether we're going to buy into our ability to create culture or God's ability to create culture. 
Autonomy upends God's created order by making creation about man instead of about God. We talked about it last week, that God is a good king. And kings are all about influence. And what kings do at the end of the day is they create culture. God created a garden, created a culture, said it's really good. And then he said, but I need you to choose me. And so you have this point where you can choose you and the culture you want to create or choose me. And in that moment, and every time we make decisions against the way of the Lord or Jesus, we're saying that my way trumps God's way here because I know better or just want to. And so really it's never a conversation about apples or ethics. It's a conversation about position and purpose. And here's why that matters. Because if we teach a story about ethics, we see a Bible that's just about rules, about right and wrong, and that exists. But if we teach a story about autonomy, we see a story throughout the scriptures about purpose and position in God's good created order. There's a difference in how we talk about the story. And so from the beginning, what we see is it's a battle against our will versus God, us recognizing that we fit into God's created order, not create our own order. And it's hard for us. It's hard because we have this deep-seated, strong pull towards autonomy. I think it's harder for us as Western individual Americans than other cultures. I think it's deeply embedded into who we are. Uh, you can go back and I can throw out some stats and some studies, but let's talk about the mask thing for a second, right? They, they said that, that your I- I proclivity as a country to wear masks directly relates to, to how independent your country is. So some countries in the East and in Asia wear masks all the time because their greatest good is their country's greatest good. In America, we are rugged individualists. We have this, been this way from the beginning when we have taught this narrative that we fought for ourselves, for our freedom, for my rights. And that even deepens and doubles if you're a Texan, right? Because Texas is the only state to be its own country for a while. I'm still proud of that. So we have this deeply embedded construct of rugged individualism from the beginning of our country to right now. And I think it's hard to fight against that. It's hard to fight against a history of autonomy into one that says we are not our own boss in the end. That ultimately we're made to be somebody else's employee. We're made... To, to proclaim, to show, to pass on the good created order, rule, and reign of a God that created. And that's really difficult for us. It comes out in so many different ways. I think it comes out ultimately, even in how we speak. It was probably two years ago, and I was giving a sermon, and I just said, I was, it was before the kid got here, and so I said, I, am, I built uh, my daughter's crib this week, right? And then people stopped me. They stopped me afterwards, and they said, you built your daughter's crib? And I said, of course. And they said, wait, you built it? And I said, yeah, I mean, I put the pieces together. And they said, no, no, you assembled your daughter's crib. And I said, well, first of all, look at me. Shocking there. We all knew what I meant, right? I'm allergic to Home Depot. Two is that even without knowing it, I'm taking more responsibility for things that I can't control. We don't understand how deep down we want to fight the idea that we're dependent on other things. And we are. For this day to happen, for food to happen, for cribs to happen, it even comes out in how we speak. We have this proclivity towards autonomy, but the Bible tells a different story that that's not what we were created for. The Bible tells a story that the, the absolute freedom leads to a tyranny of self. And there's, again, more studies I could give you where more choice leads to less joy, that we were made to follow God's good order, that we were created not for autonomy, but for community. I love how Andy Stanley, pastor in Atlanta, puts it. He says, autonomy is an appetite that can not be fully and finally satisfied 
It's a thirst that cannot be quenched. So what we see is the purpose of the apple was to remind us of God's authority and warn against the pull towards individual autonomy because that leads to a place of brokenness where we are now because we can't stand up under the weight of the responsibility of control of everything. And so the story isn't just about an apple. It's not just about an ethical proposition. It tells the story of God's good versus our good. It tells the story of God ultimately redeeming his people. It's way more than just right, wrong, and rules. And then finally, as we, stop, as we, as we end where we began, we, we talk about the idea of the garden. That was perfect, and it was. But there's a difference between perfect and final. Have you ever thought about why I think about this? Have you ever thought about why they were allowed to sin in the garden? Because true love exists, and true love exists, and choice needed to be there. And, and, and that's absolutely true. But then have you thought about, if you know the story of God, the fulfillment of the story of God's reconciliation, why one day when Jesus comes back and we're in heaven, there won't be the proclivity towards the pull to sin in the first place? In, in Revelation 21, it talks about how creation will be perfect and he will, wa- he will wipe every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. That's in Revelation 21. Have you thought about what happens if we sin there? Why can we not sin there, but we could sin in the garden in the first place? What if we sin in heaven one day? Does this whole thing start back over again? What's the difference between the two? And, and I maintain this, that, that, that there will be choice in heaven because there's true love in heaven, but it's going to be different. And, and, and why we need to think of it like that depends on how we see creation in the first place, the garden. So let's start with just our simple idea of what the garden was. The, ga- the garden was never meant to be final. It was always expand- going somewhere. The garden wasn't static. It says in the 21st of chapter one, God blessed them and said, what, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue, subdue it. The garden wasn't a final proposition, but it showed us the perfection of God and his good created order. One writer says it like this. I think it's really great. She says, Eden was a bright and beautiful, and we tend to think of it in terms of perfection. But rather than thinking of Eden in terms of perfection, we should think of it in terms of potential. Certainly Eden was pure and pristine, ordered and fulfilled, but the Eden we read about in Genesis 1 and 2 wasn't yet everything God intended for his creation. It was unsullied, but it was incomplete. So we go back to the question, why was there sin in the beginning but won't be sin one day in heaven? And it's because I think at that point we see a better picture of the fullness of God than Adam did. Because I think choice always comes down to choosing beauty. And when we say beauty, I mean beauty is that which captivates our desires and shapes our decisions. So whether you're proud of it or not, you're going to choose things that you deem beautiful. Adam and Eve probably aren't proud now of the decision they made then, but in the moment that looked the shiniest. And that's what we do. And so you can tell me all day long that my kids are my best good, but if you live in a different way, if you spend all night doing X, Y, and Z instead of helping your kids with homework, fill in whatever blank you want, I'm going to tell you, you can say this is your best good, but really you're living like this. You choose what you think is best, what captivates you. That's what beauty is. And so when we talk about the garden, Adam, Eve, and God, and heaven one day, we have to understand something. We see a fuller picture of God than Adam did because Adam didn't see a God who was gracious until after he needed God's grace. Adam didn't see a resurrected Christ. We do. So what's the difference between heaven one day and Adam then is we will look at a resurrected Christ and I think that that is going to be the most beautiful thing we will ever see so there won't be a proclivity to look anywhere else because the resurrected Christ is beautiful. It goes back to the idea essentially that, I love what 
Tim Keller's a pastor in New York City, and he said one time in an interview I listened to, they said, hey, do you love your wife more now than when you got married? And she was sitting next to him, so he said, of course, yes. And he also said that she's more beautiful now than when they got married 40 years ago, whatever it was. And they kind of pushed him on that a little bit, because again, that's the answer you're supposed to give, but do you really believe that your wife is you know, more attractive at 60 than 20? Um, if you do, awesome. And he said, yeah, because every wrinkle and every scar tells a story of us living life together. I see a fuller picture of her love now when I look at her than I did when she didn't have those things when we were 20. And that's kind of the example that we're given in the scriptures, is that we are able to look at a resurrected Jesus and see a more beautiful, fuller picture of who God is. And I think in the end, we will only choose the resurrected Christ because it is the most beautiful. It's like when your kid is born and they're brand new and they just got out of the package and they're perfect. And then they get to know you more and more and more and more. And then they realize, hopefully, I realize, hopefully, as I continue to mess up, and you get this more so when you're a parent for the first time than probably when you're a kid. But as you continue to mess up and you see the love of your parents for you in the middle of your mess, it gives you a greater appreciation for their parenting in the first place. I wish somebody would have told me that at 13, 14, 17. The idea that we see a fuller picture than Adam did. And what we see in that is that Eden then was never meant to be eternal. It was meant to start the story of God redeeming his people. Scott McKnight says it like this, reconciliation encompasses the fullness of God's triumph over evil in judgment, subjugation of the powers, and the redemption for the saints. See, I think there's a reason why this story is at the beginning of the Bible, because it was never supposed to be the end, and we gotta keep that in mind when we tell it. The creation story is only the beginning, and it points to what will be as we see a bigger, fuller picture of a gracious God that we all desperately need. It's the purpose of Adam and the apple and Eden in the first place. So God's going to come back and he's going to create and he's going to ultimately defeat death and sin and bring back shalom because of Jesus, because of what Christ did. And so if we see the story of Adam and the apple through the lens of God's ongoing redemption story, not just an ethical construct of right and wrong, we see a bigger, fuller picture of what God is doing. It allows us to grow up our idea of what the gospel is. I love I'm starting to read the Jesus Storybook Bible to my daughter because I'm a pastor and I think I'm contractually obligated to. And anyway, at the end of the, uh, the story today of the garden, it says that this isn't the end of the story when they got expelled from it. It says, God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him, they'd run from him and they'd hide him deep in their hearts. God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you, and when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of sin and the dark and the sadness you let in there. I'm coming back for you. And he would, one day, God himself would come. The story of the garden, 
reminds us that even though Adam chose an apple that brought rebellion, we can choose Jesus that brings reconciliation. Adam and the apple always pointed to Christ in the cup. The idea that he took our sins and we see it on the cross. It's this beautiful depiction of what's to come. That's why it's in the beginning. So as we tell the story of Adam and the apple through the lens of the scriptures, the context of the story that's God writing, that God's writing in the Bible, what we see is a beautiful, gracious God who's reconciling and redeeming. And it grows up our picture of what actually happened in the Garden of Eden. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you created something good and perfect. I'm thankful that you didn't give up on us when we decided that we could be better gods than you. I'm thankful that you have reconciled and redeemed through Jesus and we see that coming true as we live into his ways every day. I'm thankful that you're coming back and we get to live forever ever with the resurrected Jesus. I pray that we have good conversations about this story, good conversations about how good you are, good conversations about the garden and how as we grow up, the stories that we often told as, as kids grow up with us. And it just shows that there's, that there's never an end to the depth of knowing you. And that is a joyful thing. So be with us today as we worship. God, may we remember how good you are and remember the beauty of Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.